to learn how to walk again is one of the most beautiful, most incredible gifts that I so wish we all had. I wish that we all had memories of learning how to walk. Like if I could grant this world that, I think we would all just be a hell of a lot more grateful. everyone. Emily Abadi here. You are listening to a special week of content here on Hurdle called Running Through. With Global Running Day on Wednesday, June 1st, it's only fitting that we wrap up season nine and celebrate all week by bringing five back-to-back episodes to the feed. You guys, you know the deal. Here on the show, I am dedicated to bringing hurdlers content that encompasses all that is wellness. Still, running holds a really special place in my heart. While I originally leaned into running as a weight loss tool back in college, it has turned into a passion of mine, helping me personally get through a ton of difficult hurdle moments and 10 marathons later become a happier, healthier version of myself. This week, I am talking with other inspiring women who have also turned to running during some of life's biggest, darkest hurdles. We get vulnerable talking about tough topics like loss and grief, depression and postpartum depression, and how running and sport has helped them persevere, rediscover their self-worth, and move forward with their head held high. To kick things off, I am welcoming at 2013 Boston Marathon bombing survivor Adrienne Haslett to the show. In today's episode, we talk about how she turned one of the worst days of her life into something positive, refusing to be called a victim. Before that awful day, the then professional ballroom dancer didn't know much at the time about the sport of running. But these days, well, there's hardly a day that goes by where she doesn't lace up her sneakers. In today's episode, she talks about what it was like for her to come to sport as an adaptive athlete and recalls her vivid memories of frightening 2013 day. She shares what it was like to meet her as she calls him superhero surgeon and reflects on what it was like to learn how to walk again, saying that if we all had that experience as an adult, we may be better, more compassionate people. Of course, she talks to us about getting into running and shares what it felt like to slay, and I'll use that word, slay, the 2022 Boston Marathon, a huge accomplishment for her, her second ever alongside the GOAT, Shalane Flanagan, in five hours, 18 minutes, and 41 seconds. So this episode is full of hope and a beautiful, beautiful through line that where there is a will, there is a way. I have to give a huge, huge thanks to my sponsor for this week of content. And that sponsor is Tracksmith. Tracksmith, as you may know, is a brand for runners inspired by a deep love for the sport. They craft incredible gear for training, racing, and rest days and create experiences that make running more rewarding, more connected, and more meaningful. Their summer collection features pieces designed for running in the heat as well as staples for your vacation adventures. From their silky smooth twilight styles that seem to disappear while you're running to comfortable short tights that can carry all of your long run fuel, these are staples that will work 
as hard as you do. Explore their collections and stories at tracksmith.com and use the code HURDLE22 for free shipping. Now, this is really special to me. Tracksmith is working with me to support an organization that I feel passionately about, especially after the awful massacre last week in Ovalde, Texas at Rob Elementary. And that organization is every town. For every order that is purchased on tracksmith.com using the code HURDLE22, Tracksmith will donate 5% of all sales to every town. Now, for those of you who don't know, every town is an organization that advocates for gun control and against gun violence. So grateful to Tracksmith for partnering with me on this. And again, that code for anyone to do some good and get free shipping over on tracksmith.com is hurdle 22. Make sure you're following along with hurdle over on the socials. It's at hurdle podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Adrienne Haslett. She is a runner, a Boston bombing survivor. I am so excited to be here with you, a keynote speaker. What's going on, Adrienne? Hi, how are you? I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I love any podcast recording that starts with really exciting vibes like this. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> I've, been, I've been looking forward to talking with you. I'm a fan of your podcast and I'm just happy to be here. Thank you. Of course. Well, so happy to have you here as a part of this special series week here on Hurdle called Running Through. I would have been, I don't even know what I would have been, a fool not to reach out to you to have you come on the show and share parts of your story with the hurdlers during this week of talking through using sport, the sport that you and I both love so much, to overcome challenging times. And you, as I mentioned at the top of this, running through a Boston bombing survivor who didn't run before her incident. Mm -hmm. So that was like a a big wind up intro. (laughs) I want to hear about what life was like for you before 2013. Let's start there. Yeah. Gosh, before 2013, I was a professional ballroom dancer as a career. So A lot of people don't see that as an athletic sport, but gosh, dancing so is. uh, I was training and teaching and um, practicing pro uh, 12 hours a day and um, getting dressed up in ostrich feathers and sequins and uh, Swarovski crystals every weekend or sometimes every night and performing and competing um, all over. And it was just a blast. It was so much fun, but it really does. It takes up, you know, so much of your time and And that's awesome. But I didn't have, you know, outside things like, you know, sometimes when you're a runner, you have all these other activities because you can't like physically run for 12 hours a day. Some people might be able to like my boyfriend's crazy ultra runner, but usually you have other outside interests, but I was just dancing like that's it. I didn't know any other worlds at that time. Certainly didn't know any runners. (laughs) didn't know any runners. And it's probably really funny right now. Like even the sentence you just said, like my boyfriend, crazy ultra runner, like reflecting on your journey in 2013, you probably never thought that your partner could be a crazy ultra runner. Oh gosh, no. I was also married pre-2013. So that's a whole nother. Yeah, for sure. I mean, (laughs) yeah, the whole 
everything now is just so different from anything that it was before. I would argue that the amount of stamina that it takes to dance for like 10, 12 hours a day is just as much taxing as it would be to like be trotting around. Yeah, it is definitely, it is definitely, I mean, gosh, I think about dancing now for even an an hour straight at the, at the level that I was, and I just need a nap. (laughs) It just sounds, I was in like a two inch heel or one and a half inch heel. But if I was doing Latin dancing, which was like samba, any sort of cha-cha, rumba, swing salsa, you're in like a three and a half inch heel. So yeah, you're not just going for 12 hours. You're doing that in, in heels and practice dress clothes or, um, like work clothes basically that just have a lot of stretch. So yeah, it was, it's a lot. <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot. Sure. So yeah. you were living in Boston of the time of the 2013 mm-hmm. bombings. Where did your day start that day? So my day started, I was, I had just recently won third in the world in ballroom dancing and it was incredible and awesome. And I decided to take a day off and I didn't usually take days off. We think in the sport of dancing, we think it's really cute that Brady has an off season. Like that's cute, sweetie. <laughs> like you also have backup and someone else that knows all your moves may not be able to do them as well, but like knows all your moves, but ballroom dancers, if we get injured, we just take a cortisone shot and keep going because we're the only ones who know our choreography. So also like what um, a Boston thing of you to just be like, Brady has a backup. <laughs> Yeah, I know. You know, I said that once in a speech um, and he was there no. and I'd been saying it for so long and I forgot that he was there and he just like laughed and rolled his eyes at me, but whatever. I stand by, the, I stand by what I say. <laughs> yeah. We, I didn't take days off very often and at all and decided to take a day off and slept in a little, went to breakfast and went to lunch and walked, was walking around and I heard a bunch of commotion over on the next street next to me. And I thought, well, what is that? Like, why are people screaming and yelling that, like, why, what is, is it a parade? Like what's happening? And I went uh, a couple of streets over and saw a road race and a bunch of people running and they were like white in the face and crying for a million different reasons, I would imagine. And I asked someone, I said, what is going on? And they said, it's the Boston Marathon. And well, I understand now that that's like a national holiday in Boston, Um it certainly wasn't in my world because if I were teaching runners who were around runners, I didn't know. And we certainly didn't talk about running. Um, so I didn't know any runners at all. <clears throat> so I asked, I asked what the distance was and they said 26.2 miles and looked at me cross-eyed, like, you know, like how could this person not know that they're in Boston on marathon weekend, <laughs> which is exactly how I would look at someone now. Uh, and I said, it's a long way to go for a statement necklace and a free banana. And they were like, they just kind of laughed and rolled their eyes and it was near the finish line. And I turned, um, and walked away from the finish line and then heard a giant blast behind me. And the first blast at the finish line had gone off. Um, and I plugged my ears. Thank goodness that actually saved me from, uh, tinnitus, which is ringing in your ears. And it saved me from that. Um, I plugged my ears and put my head down. Um, which protected my face and said, the next one's going to hit. I just knew it was something other than fanfare. I just knew that it was a terrorist attack. And I don't know how I knew that. I don't know exactly how that, how I knew, but I just knew. And the next one hit and looking back at surveillance footage with the FBI when I was working on the trial and I was a witness and I obviously didn't know who it was then because 
it's so crowded. You don't know who you're standing near, but I was like shoulder to shoulder with the person, the monster, I don't ever say his name. Um, the monster that did this to me and, um, he dropped the backpack right at my feet and, um, obviously a lot of other people's feet around me and, and took off, but I was on the ground and had immediately lost my left foot and life has never been the same since. Yeah. Wow. I can't even imagine the hysteria that was occurring right around you and to even have this much recollection. And I know we're just kind of getting started here, but it is remarkable to hear that you have such vivid memories of this day. So the incident happens, the blast goes off. And do you stay awake? Or do you pass out? Yeah, hysteria is a good word for it. It was absolute chaos, as people would imagine. And a lot of people have seen on the news. My memory is crystal clear, which certainly made me a good witness. Um, But I just, I stayed awake through the whole thing. If I were passed out, uh, they think I was only passed out for like the shock, the initial maybe five second shock of it. But I remember all of it. And uh, I landed on my left hip, which luckily, you know, if if you think about that in detail, like your left leg gets blown off, you're going to go down first on your left side. And I had a big gash on my right thigh had been open. I'm really fortunate that I was wearing like three and a half inch heels um, that day because it was very clear that if I were lower to the ground, then I would have lost both knees and I would have been a double amputee. The blast hitting my right thigh was quite literally right above that bone. So I would have absolutely lost double um, if I hadn't been wearing heels. Uh, And yeah, I remember everything. I was on the ground and I opened my eyes and I didn't know if they were actually open or not because all I saw was gray. I just thought like, this is it. This Like I must not be alive. Like there's no possible way that you would survive a terrorist attack because I was hit by the second blast. I had seen the first blast and I knew that it was bad. You know, I knew that Boston was in a really bad situation, that I was in a really bad situation. Um, even before looking down and seeing that I had no left foot. And I, once I saw that, I somehow, you know, your adrenaline pops in to try and save your own life. And I rolled over, just sort of plopped over onto my belly. Um, and I started like barrel rolling with my arms or dragging myself with my arms, I guess is a better term for it, across the sidewalk. And I was just trying to get away. Like, I don't know what I was going away from or like when the next one was going to hit. I certainly didn't think there would only be two. Then I was, someone grabbed me by the shoulders uh, and drug me over to a staircase. And I immediately was eye to eye with an off-duty doctor that was, must've been right nearby and seen my injuries that were really, really bad. I mean, my jeans were blown off and blown open and he whipped his belt right off and tied a tourniquet and then grabbed someone else's belt and tied a tourniquet around my other leg. Uh, that was bleeding profusely. And I, and I started to turn really cold and close my eyes a lot. And they were like, Adrian, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And just screaming at me. And then uh, five super hot Boston firemen walked in (laughs) and (laughs) they put me in the back of an ambulance. And I was on my way to Boston medical center. And I met my Superman surgeon who saved my life that day. Superman surgeon. Wow. All all of this just absolutely incredible. Is it possible to even try to articulate the amount of pain that you were in? Yeah. You know, it's, 
it is impossible to articulate for sure. But part of that is the brain not remembering it. I know that that's not always true because in 2019, I was unfortunately hit by a car going 45 in the crosswalk. And I know all the pain from that. I remember screaming. I remember that I was in pain, but I don't remember what the pain felt like. Wow. That makes sense. No, I I hear that. I hear that. And so you get to the hospital and you meet your Superman surgeon. And at this point, your family is actually on the West Coast. Is that correct? Yeah. So I grew up right outside of Seattle, Washington. My parents had an independent bookstore in Seattle, books and records. Remember those? Back before it was like hip to have records. That was like the only way you could get music. Hip. Do people still say hip? I think people say say hip. Okay. All right. Back then we were saying hip. Um, and I thought for sure, there's no way my family and friends can get here before, before I die uh, to say goodbye. Cause I, I mean, I definitely had people telling me that they didn't think I was going to make it. You know, it was, it was really gruesome. Like there were a lot of, it was really bad and graphic, but there, there was a lot of talk of what was used to in the blast that it was radioactive. Like, so there were times when the doctors would be working on us, all of the survivors, and then they would all just step back and like not touch you and you would be losing a ton of blood. And so that's not to blame anyone. I want to be really clear, but like, there was just a lot, like they didn't know if any of us were going to make it because of that. And so they had advised me to call and say goodbye to my family. And, and also I had just lost a lot of blood. So I said, I called and said goodbye to my parents and then wheeled into surgery. Can you talk to me about that phone call? It was tough. I mean, that's an understatement, but I remember thinking, like, who, which one am I going to call? Am I going to call my mom who probably won't answer because she has absolutely no idea how to turn the ringer up and down on her phone, <laughs> even though she wants you to call all the time? My dad, but like, what if the other one wasn't home or what if they don't answer? Like, what am I going to say in a voicemail? Um, what if they're driving? They definitely won't answer because they, you know, it's at least at the time it was illegal to answer your cell phone in Washington state. TBC. Who knows what that. it is now? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure who I should call. And I decided I would call my dad. I'd want to talk to him more anyway, the daddy's girl. It ended up being that they were together. They were driving on the freeway. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, we're driving on the freeway. And I said, you need to pull over. And he, I was trying to be calm because I didn't want to cause an accident, but it was obviously chaos around me. And I was in really bad shape. And I must have sounded too calm because he said, you took your drive test in the state of Washington, Adrian, you know, it's illegal to pull over on a freeway. I was like, okay, like, do not scream when I tell you this, but I've been in a terrorist attack. I have no left foot and I need to say goodbye to you right now. And he got my mom to pull over and I said goodbye. And I told him I loved him. And, and then I talked to my mom and I can't go into what we talked about because I won't be able to finish the interview, but it was, it was tough. It was very tough. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the worst that could happen, right? That's a really hard, terrible thing to have to say goodbye to your people. And, and I was convinced I wasn't going to make it because I, I didn't think you could lose a limb and live. Like, I know that there are other amputees out there. I'm not an intelligent woman, but like there was, there were no certainties. There was no like, okay, now I'm at the hospital. I'm safe. That did, I didn't feel that way at all. I felt very in very capable hands. I knew my Superman surgeon was the best of the best head of cardiovascular surgery. Now he's like the CEO of the hospital. He's not, but like in my eyes, (laughs) he's like the king of all of it. So I definitely, you know, all of us felt like what's going to happen next. I want to talk about your recovery, but I also want to ask you like, how long did that 
feeling linger with you being worried about just walking down the hallway or opening your front door or being at a crosswalk and this happening again? Yeah, it stayed with me for probably two and a half years. That's interesting. No one's ever asked me that before. It stayed with me for probably about two and a half years. Definitely. That's PTSD, right? I mean, that's normal to have that. That's your brain. It's a lot of people think PTSD is the person not letting go of the trauma, but it's the trauma not letting go of the person. And it's really, really important to differentiate those things because it's not my fault. It's not me not going to therapy. I, was, I worked very diligently to find a therapist and did and still go to him. You can work really hard, but it, your body and your brain are trying to reconcile the fact that you just lost your limb. And when you have been enjoying a sunny day and everything's going really well in the world for you and something happens on like the happiest, sunniest day, it can make a happy, sunny, calm days seem terrifying. Right. Um, just like if something happened to someone on a road or something happened to someone in the woods, they're not going to return there. But on a happy, sunny day, you have to return to those. So uh, in life, that just is going to happen again. Right. So um, it wasn't my PTSD is not about the actual location. So I get asked a lot if if being at the marathon or at a road race is triggering. But no, because I, I didn't know what a road race was. So like I didn't I wasn't associating that with that. So there were people that were near me, other survivors who've stood in that same spot every year since they were like born with their family. It's this deep Boston tradition. And now that space is forever tainted because of what happened. And mm -hmm. I totally get that. But my PTSD is loud noises, suspicious backpacks. So like fireworks or a kid's birthday party with a lot of balloons that will pop. Someone having a big box of books and just like drops it near me, like all of a sudden makes the ground shake and makes the loud noise. I'll fly through the roof. So, so yeah, I think, you know, that stays with you for a long time. But the stranger danger, which you were referring to, for lack of a better term, that, that stays for a while because these people that did this just look like your average Joe which I think is better because I, I wouldn't want to think that it was like some type of person, right? It was a white dude in a baseball hat. It was really hard. You know, I definitely, my first few times back out just on a sidewalk, I thought everyone was a terrorist. And I never said that publicly for like five or six years because I was ashamed of that. But, you know, the world proved to me that that's what was true. So, yeah. So that was really hard. Yeah, it was really tough. And, you, you know, I had to get a lot of help with that and had to be like, okay, this is, my brain trying to, you know, I need to be proven now. Like it's building trust again. Right. So the world had to prove to me that that wasn't actually true. And that took me getting back out there again and again and again and deciding that, okay, that's not actually true. This doesn't actually happen all the time. When you were in the recovery phases, did you want to spend time alone or did you not want to spend time alone? Good question. I... I didn't know what I wanted. First of all, looking back, I didn't had no idea what I wanted, but I certainly thought I did. It's like being 18. You're like, you think you know everything, but you're so young in the new body and new trauma that you don't know what you need. That being said, I wanted to have people around, but I also didn't have the healthiest people in my life at that time. My husband at the time and I were already having big issues and had talked about divorce actually that morning of the bombing. And dance wasn't very healthy in the mental health space um, or body space to stand in front of a bunch of old white dudes and straight standing there in a string bikini they get to tell you how good or bad your body is um, 
with like actual numbers up like 10 or a zero or whatever. Um, so when something bad happens to you and you're in a trying to be perfect environment that doesn't lend itself to people mothering you or like being there for you or, you know, that just doesn't, the, the, the like beauty queen industry doesn't lend itself to like wrapping their arms around you while you're in the fetal position sobbing. Um, so all that said, I, uh, I, I didn't have people around me that I needed to, and that was really hard. So I wanted people around me, but I didn't have those people. I know that the like FBI flew your family in. So how long did they stay with you? Yeah. So when I woke up from my surgery, my parents were there and my Superman surgeon at the end of the bed, which was incredible. And also awesome. That I didn't like wake up in a room alone and it was just the best scenario that could have been just waking up in general is good. Right. Um, still living. Uh, so they stayed for two and a half weeks. My dad went back to pack stuff because obviously they, you can't pack when you're just trying to go visit your daughter. Um, after she's been blown up by a terrorist, they obviously didn't know what they wanted to bring. They didn't know how long they were going to be here. Um, I think overall it was like three weeks or so. And, you know, my brothers came, I have two older brothers, they're twins and they came out and that was awesome. But my brother's boss, uh, at the school he was teaching at the time only gave him three days, which is absolute bullshit in my mind. And, um, and my other brother, um, you know, he has four kids and a business to run. So he came out for, I think a week, that was all he could stay. You know, it's hard to like, you can't just have people coming and, you know, they're not sleeping at the hospital with you. So like, there's a lot of logistics stuff that can happen. That's really hard. I will say that the FBI, as you said, they flew people out and they have funds for that, which I think everyone should know. Um, If the absolute worst happens in your world, they will track your people down and get them to where they need to go and put them up in a hotel. So that was wonderful and something that I wish everyone knew about the FBI. Um, They take care of you. And that's not to benefit them. That's just, that's the government doing amazing things for their people. So um, that was wonderful and very helpful. And we each had a victim advocate that was like in charge of their family and making sure. So for instance, I didn't know that the blast had come. I thought the blast had come from the sky for like three months because I wouldn't let anyone talk to me about what happened. I actually had put a sign on the outside of my door saying I have enough truth that I'm dealing with. Like my leg is gone. I don't want to know anything more than that. And going back to the FBI, they would escort and drive my parents from wherever they were staying to the hospital. So I didn't even know there was lockdown. Like I didn't know that was a thing. Like while the whole world was watching this thing, like I had no clue. After you get out of this surgery and you are, you know, in quote unquote recovery, what is that transition like? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think it's just there's there's a thing that happens with your brain after trauma, especially early on, that is what my therapist refers to as broken record, where your subconscious is just trying to figure out what just happened and reconcile it with your brain and your new reality. And um, and so it sounds like a broken record. Like someone could be telling you a bunch of information about prosthetics and you're going to walk one day and here's what we did with your leg and here's how you treat this wound. And, 
And meanwhile, in your head, it's just a broken record. Like, oh my gosh, my leg is gone. Oh my gosh, I got blown up by a terrorist. Oh my gosh, my leg is gone, you know, over and over again. And you can't intake new information. So who knows who I met? Who knows what I said? Who knows what they said to me? No clue. You just can't intake new information. So people will say like, we had the most heartfelt conversation. And I'm like, really? (laughs) I don't remember that. I was also on every medication possible, but (sighs) it just looked, what did that look like? It looked like a lot of crying and a lot of anger. Um, I didn't know anger was actually grief, but it was, um, it was a lot of crying. I was just really sad. You know, it was just really sad that my world would never be the same. And there were a lot of times where I thought I couldn't walk again and certainly never dreamed of dancing or becoming a runner. I recall from, I believe it was another podcast that I listened to you speak on where even going into surgery, you told your Superman surgeon that you were the number three ballroom dancer in the world and he needed to do something so that you could become number one. Yeah, I did. I was searching that perfection so deep that that's what I said to him. And I can't believe I did that. I mean, it makes me sick. That's who I was. You know, I was really searching that perfection and I wanted to be first. Like that was all that mattered to me. And that's hard. That's a hard reality to grasp. But then the other side of that, of finally not being that perfect, um, sure feels good. (laughs) Like (laughs) take me or leave me. When do you think you personally, emotionally got from the place of nonstop anger to more gratitude, which is, I know, where you live your life from now. When did that really start to transition for you? Yeah, you know, I remember my friends and family coming into the hospital. This is where I started seeing glimmers of it. It wasn't a full transition at this point, but I I got there later on. I started to see glimmers of it because I had people coming into the hospital that were visiting me and just being really pissy about their own lives. And they had it really good. And just getting really upset about small things and all of this. And it just... I just was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yo, the audacity for someone to come into your hospital room with like their, not to say that like people aren't entitled to their issues, but you would think to know your audience. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that tells you who I was hanging out with. And you know, my mom can be really negative and I don't mind saying that out loud. I'm not here to keep her secrets. And, and it, we battle about that a lot. And I told her, you can't talk negatively about anyone while I'm in here. Like, you can't do it. I don't want to hear it anymore. And that was really hard for her. Um, and she had to leave the room a lot in order to tell someone else something negative about someone. And and that's tough. And that was really eye-opening to me to have, to really observe people in a new way. Because um, all I was doing, all I was doing all day, every day was just sitting and listening to people. And so when I wasn't having that broken record in my head and, and so when I saw people being negative or just about stupid stuff, I just remember thinking like, if I make it through this, which I don't know, it feels like I am. And I've been told that I'm going to live, you know, I've lived this past week or whatever in the hospital. I'm certainly not going to be perfect. There is no such thing, nor do I want it. But I'm going to try my hardest not to talk crap about people and just be really grateful for the little things that I can do. And, and so that was the glimmer of that gratitude 
of just like being gratitude of being alive. Gratitude. There was a little bit of gratitude that I got to start my life over again. As strange as that sounds, like not grateful it happened. I want to be really clear. Never grateful it happened. I'm not one of those people. Some people get hit by a car and they're really excited it happened because it changes their life. I am not in that space and I never will be. But I was grateful that I could, I had glimmers of like, I'm going to do some serious editing in my life and of people and places and things and marriage and stuff. And then later on, that gratitude came when I learned how to walk. I got my leg and you step down on that leg and you have to you know, numb all of these nerves that are just very angry about what happened in their surgery. And there's so much pain. And yes, you get a leg and it's exciting to get a leg, but it's not your leg. And so a lot of tears that happen when people get their first leg, yes, it's gratitude, but like, it's also just anguish that this is now real. Um, And I started to walk uh, between ballet bars that I used to dance between And to learn how to walk again is one of the most beautiful, most incredible gifts that I so wish we all had. I wish that we all had memories of learning how to walk. Like if I could grant this world that, I think we would all just be a hell of a lot more grateful. If you look at yourself going downstairs, like literally going, taking steps downstairs, you fall, like you fall to the next step. And so to take a new foot, a new body part that you can't feel is on the edge of the stair and fall onto it and hope, hope that it catches you and you don't crack your skull open. I mean, there is no better gift. I'm not talking in in coming back from injury, which don't get me wrong is hard. I've done that too. But to have a whole new body part and to to put your hands just like a toddler does at the end of this new body part and be like, okay, that's what that feels like. I had no idea my body. No, we all know our body. We're like, I have a mole there and a funny toenail there, but like to get to know an entirely new body part, there are a lot of psychologists that say that losing your leg is like mourning your own death because it's the only thing that it's like you would literally lose a part of yourself. And there's a rebuilding and newness about getting a new body part and rebuilding yourself. And that happened for me when I learned how to walk. And then the gratitude came from, oh, guess what? I have to pee. I can get up and pee like because there was a long time where I couldn't. And so that was just the gratitude from that. I mean, I love running. I love, I love running really fast. I love dancing and I'm so proud that I've been able to do all of that, but there's nothing like walking. You learn how to walk. When do you learn how to run? I learned how to, I went on my first run New Year's Day, 2016, I had never been a runner, like literally wrote like forged notes in high school to get out of running the like presidential fitness or like the obligatory mile that you have to do to like prove yourself in high school and middle school and such. And I never did it ever. I was like sick, 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 skip class, serve detention, (laughs) whatever, worth it. I don't care. And I would never sweat in public. And I decided to pick it up. I wanted to send a great big thank you to everyone who was in the running community and everyone who just rallied around all of us survivors in that Boston Strong message. It just meant so much to me. And so I I started to run. Run slash like jog, fall, crawl. It was was not easy. And when you started the run, jog, crawl, skip situation, did you have any 
expectation or were you just happy to try to move your body in this newer way? You know, I didn't have too much of an expectation because I still didn't know any runners. Like I knew I had met Shalane at that point and that was awesome, but I didn't know stats or pace or any of that. And so I didn't, I wasn't like part of a run group where I was comparing myself to other people. Um, I was just running by myself, like very incognito. I didn't want witnesses. <laughs> also of note though, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the fact that you may or may not have told Anderson Cooper that you were going to run the marathon, having never run a day in your life after everything went down. Yeah. Yep. It was, I want to say, I need to look this up, but it was like four or five days after I lost my leg. I was in the hospital and my mom snuck Anderson Cooper into my room. <laughs> just casual. Just casual. And uh, she went down to Copley Square and can, I didn't know she was, I knew she was going to Copley Square, but I didn't know she was going to bring him back. And she did. Um, she just went and found him. <laughs> she just went and found him. Yeah. Just no big deal. Do you want to go talk to my daughter? That's very, my, that's very her. Yeah. I told him that I wanted to learn how to dance again. He said, will you teach me if you learn? And I said, sure. Like, hell yes. And then that felt really good to say that goal out loud. So then I somehow out of my mouth came. Yeah. And I think one day I'll run the Boston marathon as a thank you to everyone who has supported all of us and kept us going. And my dad was like in the background, like waving his hands, like, you do not do that. You do not <laughs> run. You are not that person. Don't say that. And meanwhile, I forgot the cameras were there because, you know, his blue eyes. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I had told a bunch of people. So I, I had a lot of people that had this expectation or this, they were, you know, hadn't forgotten that I had said this in 2013. So I thought I'd give this running a try. And um, when people asked me about it, I kept reminding them, I'm like, do you know that that's 26.2 miles? Like, that's really long. And then they would respond with, yeah, but you could do anything. And I'm like, oh, I don't want you to believe in me right now. I want you to be like, it's totally fine if you don't do it. So yeah, it was really hard. When did running transition from something that you kind of dreaded but hoped to get into to an activity that gave you solace and helped you relearn and refine a bit of your sense of self? You know, I had been running for about four or five months and I still didn't tell anyone. And I was doing some walking at that point, you know, I was like run walking, but I was running and yeah. Um, and I didn't know run walking wasn't running or what you're supposed to run the whole time. Like I didn't know any of these things. So yeah, run walking is running. Anyone listening to this right now? It's running. Yeah. If Shalane says it is, it is. It is. Um, and, uh, and so I was at brunch one day and I finally told my friends, I was like, I'm running. And they said, no way. How, how far are you running? And I said, oh, I don't know. Is there, is there like a, do you have a car follow you? Like, you know, I have no sense of direction. Like, I don't know. I don't even know where I go. I just run till you I get lost and follow you. Find, find the house again. And like, I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, and they said, no, Adrian, there's an app for that. And I said, oh, cool. Where, where is that? So they downloaded it. I don't do tech. Everyone learned how to tech when I was on a ballroom dance floor, as you know, because I just trying to get onto this podcast recording. So anyway, they downloaded the app and I went out the next morning and I found out I was running 10 miles. And I was like, well, holy hell, I didn't know that. That's far. If you, if and this was thought, a video you were watching right now, you guys would have seen my face like completely yeah, whole, drop in shock. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. And same, same. I had no idea. I thought I was just out there forever because I was really bad at it, which I was. Um, but I thought, well, I could double that and add six. I'm going to do the marathon. Like, I don't need to be perfect. I'm just going to do it. And then, then Emily, I never ran further than 10 miles. And then I was towing the line at the 2016 Boston marathon. <clears throat> I was like, Oh, whatever. I don't need to. I'm fine. Like I, you don't think you're not training if you've never done it and you don't have runner friends. So then you hit a lot of hurdles when it comes to actually running the marathon. Talk us through the sea of hurdle moments that you had between what was 2016 and 2022. Yeah. 2016, I, it was so tough. I was staying at that start line with my uh, boyfriend at the time, who's now one of my best friends, love him, Dan, and, um, and had a full panic attack. Um, and he said, you know, Adrian, what will get you to the finish line? is nothing compared to what got you to the start. And I said, you're right. You're right. That's true. Like I had learned how to walk again. I danced, I performed, I had done so much with PTSD that I was able to be in crowds again and around loud noises and all the things. And so I, the gun went off and I started running uh, and then ran for about five minutes. And I was like, wow, that was really hard. And then I crawled, walked, hobbled, stopped in almost every medical tent uh, to hang out. I stopped for lunch. I like crawled, I was carried. I barely made it. And I was the final finisher in 10 hours and 44 minutes in 2016. And two seconds after crossing the line, uh, then President Barack Obama tweeted me and said, congratulations, Adrian, we carry on, we finish the race, we don't let terrorists stop us. Um, and that was incredible and amazing. And I was so in so much pain from running and I had uh, major issues with my prosthetic throughout that ra race, run, crawl. Um, and I hadn't trained. And I wouldn't change it for the world. It was amazing. Uh, but I came in dead last and I really wanted to see what it would be like to come in first. And so let's see, that was 2016, 2017. I spectated and one year I was testifying and then 20 or no, 2018, I trained really, really hard and was cruising at like eight minute miles. And that was the year of the hypothermia. Mm -hmm. um, it was so awful in Boston that year that they closed the airport. One of my dear friends who's at the BAA and uh, he described it as a frozen car wash, which is exactly what it was. Um, and I got hypothermia at like mile six or mile 10. I don't even remember. And I didn't know my own name and I was pulled. Um, and that was heartbreaking. I mean, they made the right decision. The medical team made a right decision to pull me, but that's a hard pill to swallow. That was heartbreaking. And then 2019, I was training and 100 days out, I was walking to dinner, had the right of way in a crosswalk in a car going about 40, 45 miles yeah. an hour, barreled into me um, and actually hit me on my left side. They didn't have any headlights on. Uh, they did not give him a breathalyzer, which was horrific, but he hit me on my left side. And because his carbon fiber bumper hit my carbon fiber leg, um, I flew about four car lengths ahead of me and was lucky there were no other cars on the road. And I just smashed into the pavement and shattered my left arm, shoulder, everything, hip. And I was in the hospital for another three or four months because I couldn't get my leg on with only one arm. And then 2020 hit. But in the good news, 
uh, between 2019 and 2020 was that I had been advocating for a new para division in the Boston Marathon. I had looked around at divisions that would include people who look like me and people who ran like me in the running blades. And I was very heartbroken to learn that even the Paralympics doesn't have anything above. I thought it was the 400, but it's actually the 200 meters for us. They don't have 5Ks or 10Ks or 1500s or marathon. They do for people in chairs and people who are visually impaired, but they won't print out any extra bibs for us. And um, there aren't any in the major marathons or 5Ks or 10Ks. So I was advocating really hard for that and had worked on becoming a faster runner. Uh, And I was really happy that when I was recovering from being hit by that car, the BAA took me out to lunch and said, we now have a division. So we would love for you to win it. We'd love for you to run it. We'd love for you to be, you know, there at that starting line in 2020. And then we all know what happened in 2020. Uh, And then um, that one was postponed the very first time Boston Marathon did not ever run, um, even through the wars. And that was a hard time for everyone in 2020. And then I was training for the 2021 race, which I was training hard for, but um, rolled my ankle about a month out from the race and sprained it. I couldn't walk for a few days and it was just really, really hard. And my doctors told me there's absolutely no way, like you shouldn't even be walking in this probably without, you know, help. And um, so I was unable to do it. And then finally told the line in 2022. So yeah, setback <laughs> after setback after setback. Oh my um, gosh. It was just so much and uh, so much to get to this race, even to the start line. And um, my coach and, and support runner and very dear friend, Shalene Flanagan, had, that's why we made that our A goal was just to get to the start line healthy because we knew how many times I had tried to do that. And, you know, it is a lot of us think of the finish line, but just to get to the start healthy is a huge accomplishment. We put our bodies through a lot in marathon training and as runners in general, um, no matter what distance you're, yeah, no matter what distance you're doing. So my history with that goal. 2016 was an awesome race and I'm glad I did it. And, you know, I wouldn't change anything. It was a reflection of my training, but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to compete in in the marathon for sure. 2022 was what you really came for. So for you, five hours, 18 minutes, 41 seconds of your life alongside one of the best to do it in the game. When you reflect on that day, if you had to pick one word to describe it, what do you go with? Oh man, it's immediately here and I like start to tear up. Perfect. And I don't like using that word because I've talked about my history with that word, but it was perfect because it was exactly what I needed. Exactly. I think if I just look at it without me in it, just observing Boston and all the other runners, I think it was perfect for them, even though I'm sure that everyone had different days out there. I mean, perfect as in the crowds were back. It was back on Patriots Day again. It was the, so you, you can never have the like perfect air quote, perfect weather. I had dialed in the humidity and the weather and it was the exact numbers I wanted. Like that never happens. Um, and so that was amazing to be able to do that and have it be that weather. And that greatly affects how my leg performs, uh, and whether I'm slowing down for that or not. So that was a huge benefit, but yeah, it was, it was the most perfect day. And I had the best of the, the best in the business right next to me to enjoy it with. And, um, 
and you know Shalane had major history with with the race as well she had you know wanted to win it herself and she was there um her first Boston marathon was in 2013 and she uh had a really good day and and crossed the finish line and and the blast went off and she was at the Copley Square Hotel and uh she was actually the first professional runner to let the Boston Athletic Association know uh, I'll be back in 2014. Like I will be back to run this race. And, and she used to hand out water right near the finish line um, back when they had a water stop that close to the finish line to runners when, and when her dad was running. So she had major history with, with this race and with my story as well as us developing such a close friendship. So um, it was just such a full circle moment of not being a runner. And then suddenly being there with her was just, it was amazing. What has running given you? Running has given me the ability to show up as I am, not only for the run in the morning, straight out of the bed and no makeup and flat shoes and sweating in public, but it's given me the ability to show up in life as I am, as I want to be, as I am in my personality, as I am in my body, being scarred from multiple traumas and broken and missing pieces. It's given me the ability to show up and prove that I can still be strong. And it's given me incredible friendships that are truer than anything I've ever known. It's given me confidence to try other things that I probably wouldn't have tried if I hadn't just crushed 26.2 miles or even just a mile or whatever (laughs) it was that I did that morning. What excites you right now? Right now, uh, in running, I am very excited that the Boston Athletic Association just announced that the boss that the BAA 10K will now be competitive for people like me. So we now have a competitive division, which is very exciting. Um, I'm excited that my post-COVID hack, uh, my cough and my lungs are starting to clear. I was very concerned because I was I was really struggling. I was really struggling. I haven't really let that on, but I've been really struggling with trying to run any distance since Boston because of COVID. I got it really, really badly and boosted and vaxxed and all those things, but man, it hit me. Um, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to decorate this new house. I just moved in with my boyfriend uh, right before the marathon. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so it's been fun. Uh, that's been really fun and developing that relationship further and deeper and um, I love decorating a new house. That's exciting. <laughs> what uh, What's your favorite piece of running gear right now, Adrian? Ooh, running gear. Oh, well, I just got a bunch of Bowerman. You know, before the marathon, I got some really sick kits from Bowerman. So um, those are those are very exciting. I'm excited to sport the crop uh, come the summer heat. The BA 10K is actually run on my birthday. So I'm pretty stoked to I know it's pretty fun. So go for the win for that. Although it's now that the 10 K is happening. There are people that I don't even know that I don't know what the competition is going to be like because it's a different distance and there are new people showing up. And that's what I wanted when I fought for this division. Uh, but you know what? It, I'd love to take a race, so it doesn't need to be too competitive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm looking forward to, yeah, rocking the crop. Um, so I think my new, my favorite running thing right now is, um, is definitely the BTC gear. And uh, I just got a Peloton tread. So welcome to the Peloton fam. I'm deep in the Peloton fam now. I'm uh, 
I'm doing, I've told anyone this yet, but I'll, I can say it here. I'm, I've been brought on to give some feedback on how Peloton uh, works with people with disabilities. So I'm eager to try out all of their things and, uh, and be able to work with them on making it more inclusive in the future. So both with software and hardware. Um, so it's very exciting. And I love the Peloton fam. Uh, Bex and I've been friends for a while and I just, I'm super stoked. So it's very exciting. What would you say is one of your favorite? Uh, are you a podcast or a music runner? Ooh, uh, both, but music. I think with dance, like I'm so highly motivated with music. Uh, Shalane and I were joking that we needed, um, we kept sending each other playlists because obviously we were across the country from each other. And uh, and so we we she ran with her phone. She's never run a marathon with her phone before. And then we played, she tried to play me some music when it was, uh, I was having some hard times, but the crowds were so loud we couldn't hear it, which is a good thing <laughs> to happen. Um, I am definitely motivated by music. Do you have a go-to now. like number one running song? Yeah, but you know, it's so not unique. Um, it's Stronger by The Score. Um, I love that for you. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, <laughs> and I Ain't Gonna Die Tonight by Macklemore, uh, um, who I grew up near. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. Fun fact. <laughs> yeah, fun fact. <laughs> oh my God. Um, right yeah. now, if someone goes to your Instagram page, they see a woman that is an adaptive athlete. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Ooh, wow. Um, it's a great question. I see... I see someone who's fought really, really hard to get here. Um, I have fought really, really hard uh, throughout my life to get to where I am now. And I'm really proud of that. Um, Yeah, I, I see someone who's doing her very best to not be perfect. Uh, and to show up as herself and to keep advocating for others who are like me. I know what it's like to be in a hospital room and feel completely broken um, when you've identified as having a perfect body. That is really hard. And I want to be there for other women and girls. And I mentor a lot of girls through the early days of being amputees. And um, when I look in the mirror, I, I am really proud that I can do that. Right now, Adrian, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice laying in that hospital room, knowing what you know now. What do you tell yourself going through that hurdle moment? Oh, hold on tight. Um, it's okay to edit ruthlessly and frequently kick them, kick them all out and start over. Like it's never too late to do that. That's going to sound like I was divorced. My husband divorced me. Um, but I, I kick them all out and edit ruthlessly, um, because you need to protect yourself and, and you have to protect your mental health. It's just really important. Your mental health. If you, if you are surrounded by people who aren't healthy, you are going to be unhealthy in body and mind. And if you're unhealthy in your mind, you're going to be unhealthy in your body. I mean, that's just, they're, they're not, they're not parallel. They're linked. Yeah. Yeah. 
for sure. Adrian, the world is so much better for your light and for your perspective. And I'm so excited that we were able to finally come together and do this for anyone who's not yet following along with you on the socials. How do they do that? How do they keep up with you? Give us the details. Uh, I am, uh, <laughs> I'm an Instagram addict. I am not sorry about that. Um, I told my therapist early on that that was not something we were going to work on. We had plenty of other things. <laughs> Uh, um, so I'm on Instagram under my own name, Adrian Haslett, Adrian HD on Twitter, and I'm, will never be on Facebook. I think I exist on there, but hell to the no on that hell one. Hell to the no. Hell to the no. I'm over at Emily Abadian over at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. 